There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to our podcast, Life After the Letters. I'm Amelie. And I'm Suba. We're friends that met whilst working our first shifts as junior doctors. And we're here to talk about the stories and challenges that we face every day. Working in hospital, we think about delays in presentation all the time. Why did dad bring his limping child to A&E five days after the injury? And why has this lady only just come to hospital to seek help for a breast abscess, four months after she noticed a lump for the first time? Now, as doctors and health care professionals, we rarely think about the other side of the coin. You know those times when a patient is stood in front of you, itching to go home, and yes, you've dealt with their immediate problem, but there's that niggling thought in the back of your mind that they may just have some other pressing issues. But all you do is send them home with a discharge letter with the words, for GP follow-up. Today we'll be talking about delays in treatment across the board. We'll also look at the successes that have transformed healthcare in the UK, the gaps that we need to identify and safety net as doctors, and the areas that sometimes feel out of our control. Hello, Super. <laughs> cool. Hey. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining me, finally. I know, I know. I've been a bit late trying to get through to Amelie, <laughs> so yeah, it's been a crazy day. But congratulations to Super's brother, who's reached his one-year anniversary. Yeah, shout out to my bro. <laughs> um, yeah, they've been married for a year. Literally can't believe how quickly that year has flown by. It's flown by. Yeah, because it was at the... It, yeah, so literally... And when your mum invited me to the wedding and you didn't even <laughs> No, me. I didn't. But it's cool, it's fine, I'm over it. <laughs> and this is where we're friends now. Can you please not make it sound like I didn't want you at the wedding? Guys, I love Super's just... mum. I love Super's mum. She invites me to things. My mum's actually crazy, particularly after my day of shopping with her which is (laughs) insane anyways um how are you how's your day my day's been good actually i started it off with a yoga session yeah i feel like a human being because i've been working like eight days in a row on a and e and so today was just really good to start the day not going into hospital not wearing my scrubs Mm. came back home because i couldn't hack being outside in the snow and it's so cold this snow is crazy where is spring this time (laughs) No, but seriously. It's where's... quite literally, it should be summer soon. I don't know. Will summer ever come? I have no idea. So, <laughs> but um, today, yes, I thought it'd be really interesting to talk about delays in treatment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we've got a great sort of story about this as well, haven't we? 
Yeah, that actually made us think about it in the first place. Mm. Like, I was working in A&E, like all my stories like seem <laughs> to start with these days. And there's a lady who came in with abdominal pain. And it wasn't something that fit in with those, like, umbrella of abdominal pain kind of symptoms. Mm. So it wasn't, like, ovarian. Mm. It wasn't, like, appendicitis. Mm. She didn't have any other symptoms with it. It didn't feel like she had a stone in her kidney. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, you have to just, like, bang these things out in A&E. Yeah. Um, is there anything we can do straight away? But it was just something that I just didn't really know what to do. It was significant. It was significant. The pain was significant, mm. but it just didn't fit with anything nicely. Mm. And it wasn't even musculoskeletal. Like, you know, there's a mm. point when you're like, oh, please make the pain worse when I press. Yeah. Oh, please let the pain be worse when you move around. But yeah. it literally just wasn't any of those. Yeah. So um, we just had to do investigations. Though, basically, I spoke to one person, first of all, and they were like, you can send that patient home, get them to be followed up by the GP, mm. which I completely see why you could do that. Of course. Because you... actually she was managed well with her pain control. Mm. But it was just weird that the pain kept coming back. And you've, you know, sometimes I think you sort of, when you're working in different parts of the NHS, you're, it's like you've got that hat on. Yes, even yes though, you do. Even though actually you're a, do- you're a doctor underneath that hat, you're a yeah. doctor in all your forms and you could be you know, that patient could have seen you in 10 different places. Totally. Particularly when you're a junior, you're an F1 or an F2, and actually you're rotating every four months. You might be the doctor that's seen them in a that asked them to go to the GP, and then next week when you switch over, you could be the same doctor they come and see <laughs> in and GP. And you're sitting in GP, and then you're referring them to a specialist. But that's the thing, we've only got resources at our hands when we're working in specific places. Yeah. So actually, I could see why the GP would have been the best person to manage this lady, and figure out some follow-up and figure out what scans we need to do to see what's going on. And we know that from the medical side, but at the same time, that lady or that man or whoever it was who came to A&E with those symptoms came to A&E. They didn't go to their GP and now they've come to you. Yes, exactly. And for me, weirdly that day, it was just one of those days, you know when you're going to work and you're in that mood of like, I'm going to figure everything out today, Mm -hmm. rather than like, I'm just going to get people home, I'm going to see as many people as I can. But I was just in one of those moods when it wasn't too busy in the department, Mm. and I had a bit more time, so I was like calling the radiologist, calling the medics. You love a call. I love calling people, (laughs) because actually it's the best way of getting stuff sorted, because Mm. you've got the specialist right at your hands, Mm. so you can speak to them. Anyway, long story short, um, I spoke to a couple of people, spoke to one of my consultants who's who's a bit more interested in the medicine side of things, um, and what we found was that there was something on a scan that would need investigation. Mm. So you did find out what was causing the pain, and it is something that was a bit more sort of a long-term chronic thing that needs to be managed. Yes, um, and probably not even necessarily something that needs to be managed like in or just the, investigate it yeah. and either get reassurance from or start some treatment for it yeah um, but, but that that scan was the first step which luckily yes. happened then and there in A&E rather than being a case of okay try and make a point at your GP which the patient may or may not do mm-hmm. and that is something that's out of your control it is even though probably unfortunately the patient clearly wants to be treated because they've presented it yes. may just be that actually they perceive accessing their GP is harder, which is probably why they turn to you in the first place. They might even perceive their pain as actually being fine. Yeah. Because if you've got pain, super, and it's controlled Mm. with some paracetamol, Mm. maybe you won't go back to your GP. Even if I've given you a letter and emailed the GP with a letter, if no one's going to seek the follow-up, then that patient might just go home and stay home until things get worse. Precisely. And also patients' understanding of diagnoses are very 
different. Yeah, different is the word. Yeah, in definitely. terms of a patient can come to you in A&E with pain, mm-hmm. be seen by you, the pain settle down, and you say to them, look, it's not anything acute, please yeah. see your GP, and they can think, well, then it's fine. Go home, sit on it for a month until actually the pain but flares acute, up acute, a lot of the times, isn't the problem, because acute, mm. if it's acute, you can get it sorted straight away, yeah. and we know exactly what's going on. But when it's chronic, that's when we're starting thinking of the big C. You're yeah. starting to think of something more sinister is going on. More complex management or as complex. well. And also, I think that it's dangerous because sometimes maybe patients can perceive acute as worrying and non-acute as non-worrying. That's yeah. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Acute acute and worrying are, always come together. Yes, they do. But non-acute and worrying is also a category that yeah. maybe patients don't and always appreciate. And that's definitely responsibility as clinicians to... Mm make that clear to patients and mm. I appreciate that we don't have t- a lot of time in some cases mm. but if we say you should go to your GP afterwards mm. it should actually just be in order go to your GP get this checked out in the next two weeks mm. because actually you know when they talk about like smart goals and stuff when you're making goals for yourself mm. actually if you're specific about it give them a time mm. reference mm. I can't remember the M the A or the R <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure if you fulfilled all those criteria in talking to a patient they would have a stronger understanding of what's going... Well, not what's going on, no, but what needs that, yeah. to be done. Yeah, and why that's important yes. and when they should be, you know, aiming to see their GP by, at what point should things have been wrapped up, and et cetera, et cetera. Totally. And you've got those things in place, like the two-week wait, um, red flag symptoms. Mm. But the difficulty is, if that patient now goes to the GP and actually they don't fulfil any criteria in the two-week wait... And actually, if they start fulfilling criteria later on, let's say, let's say something's cancerous in origin, actually, by the time they might start presenting with symptoms, it might be a lot later down the time frame. Mm. Mm. At which point, the management thing you know, has the changed. Op- the management options will be a lot more limited. Yes, yes. And actually, the patient's mortality would be affected by yeah, that. Yeah. So. I think we've got a responsibility as medics to talk to people more clearly about things. Mm. But I suppose, like you're saying, it's difficult to know what's appropriate because you don't want to over-examine, you don't want to over-treat, no, and, and you, you don't... don't want to make people feel um, like anxious. I was going to say, this is the, that's my this, that is the line that's you're mm-hmm. kind of towing. That mm-hmm. is firstly managing your anxiety, which is what you're talking about. Over, oh yeah, over- and I'm managing my own anxiety at hospital every day. Over-examining <laughs> and over-invest- over-examining and over-investigating yeah. is us learning to manage our own anxieties exactly but then also managing the patient's anxieties and firstly the patient may not have any anxiety and you don't want to you know barge in there and provoke it by being like well look it could be you know that it could be something sinister um (laughs) but then also you don't want to like be so blasé about everything and not give your patient a realistic yeah you know understanding of what you might be thinking and sometimes you know what i think often when it is something like a malignancy yeah everyone in the room is already thinking it yeah the patient first of all but yeah definitely and you know if you ask them what are your concerns a lot of the times a family member has died of something of course and there's a strong family history of breast cancer yeah like they've had friends or they've had you know they've heard stories of Mm -hmm. other people that have passed away or or you know had cancer diagnoses and usually it is at the forefront of these patients minds when they come to us to talk about these things and there's no need for us to sort of beat around the bush too much yeah too yeah but then you have to you have to assess that patient and think is this what they want from me or yeah is this going to make them 
unduly anxious yeah. when they go home yeah. so much that they're not going to cope? Or actually, yeah. is this going to make them feel better and reassured that actually you're taking what they're saying seriously? And that is actually the importance of finding the line. And I think also sometimes... Um, I remember this actually as a medical student. How do you student. do that or how do you try and achieve that? Well, I was finish your say, story. Finish your I story. Well, say, as, as, as a medical student, mm-hmm. um, you know, you it was the first time we sort of started seeing patients a bit in GP practice. Mm-hmm. So it was my final oh, year. Oh, good times. Good times. So I was <laughs> final year GP practice and I had a, a chap come in with um, high blood pressure. So, yeah, you know, your bread and butter in GP, mm-hmm, a bit mm-hmm. of high blood pressure. But it was the first time. So, you know, by the guidelines, you've got to... Um, monitor it for a while and x y and z and i sort of explained to him look you're on the borderline and why it was significant in terms of possible sort of long-term adverse risk of clotting risk yeah yeah sort of you know strokes heart attacks Mm -hmm. kidney disease um you know all that sort of stuff i explained Mm -hmm. all of that to him um but in a way (laughs) that actually if that was if that was you yeah as a medical professional Mm -hmm. the things that you now already know from your from your training Mm -hmm as to why something that seems as innocuous as blood pressure can really, really affect your health and yeah. your life way down the line. And that's changes, lifestyle changes that you can make at, you know, at the point that this chat was at was a turning point in his mm-hmm, life mm-hmm. where this slightly raised blood pressure could be a big motivation for him to make massive lifestyle modifications yeah, it could be. that can in 40 years greatly changed these how did he receive what you were saying so this was interesting because i think um i was quite frank about it i was sort of very much like look okay this is (laughs) look yeah (laughs) sit down (laughs) let me tell you something but you know i kind of laid it out for him Mm -hmm. and um also taking into account that like sometimes people's understanding of health comes from the weirdest places like a lot of word of mouth a lot of sort of old wives tales Mm. and they come to you looking for professional advice. Yeah. And that was sort of what I was able to give him was the information that, you know, that I would want to know mm-hmm, that would change, make me, sort of motivate me to change things. But then think about it, Suba. How much time did you have with him? Because I bet the amount of time that yeah. you had as a medical student was so, so different. So different. So obviously I had a full 30, 40 minutes with him. <laughs> Any we spent so long with patients in... Any in medical question, student life. Any question this guy had, like, you know, we talked about his smoking, his drinking. And what actually, stressors. And then you figure them out and, and then, then you understand you have, the patient. And you build so much rapport with these people mm-hmm. in that length of time. And actually, he went home, he self-monitored his blood pressure, he made lifestyle changes, he come back in two weeks, his blood pressure was perfect. And he was like... He was like, you know, and he had a strong family history of heart disease. He had lots of risk factors, actually. and Like, so many cardiovascular risk factors. Mm-hmm. And actually... He like came back in two weeks' time and was like, I've stopped drinking, I'm cutting down my smoking. Did you see him again? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. And he had, he had a little book where he had made his own little chart where he was tracking his blood pressure. <laughs> and, I mean, to the point where you don't want to push people to a point of, like, obsession. <laughs> yeah. But he was making, like, oh, wow, okay. But I think it was motivating him because he course. was looking at it and he was seeing... And you're seeing improve- change. He was seeing, seeing tangible improvements. Yeah. And for him, like... You know, and it, and it was it was really like it was actually really rewarding because you're like mm-hmm. that's excellent. Like you've given the people the information and the tools, but they've gone away and they've taken that on board and made amazing changes. But we digress. Let's come back to um, slightly we digress yeah. because actually what you're saying here is that mm. if you're able to spend time with a patient, mm. communicate things effectively to them so that they understand and actually like that almost the ethos of what you're saying makes sense to them and they're able to take it on board, mm. we're not going to have 
worse management problems further, sorry, down, the line. further down the line. Yeah. As in, you're making their health a priority right now. And yeah. you're you're not going to get to a point where they need to see a GP for longer or need more med- medication or whatever. Exactly. And actually what you're doing in that moment is that you are making... Sounds really cheesy, but you're putting the patient in the driver's seat yeah. of their vehicle of health. <laughs> and you, you're the little sat nav <laughs> in the corner. But that's what it is. It's about giving people autonomy, isn't it? Absolutely. And yeah, and encouraging people to take control of yeah. their health. And you are like advising them. And we've spoken about um, general practice because obviously most people access their healthcare through general practice. Yeah. But then we also in hospital see a lot of patients who find it difficult to access their GP, be it because they want their GP to see their GP today, yeah. or they want to see their GP on a day that they're not going to work, yeah. or so on. And particularly if they've got children, yeah. the anxiety levels are like times a hundred, and they want their child to be seen today. Straight away, yeah. Yeah, which I understand, and I probably want the same. Yeah. So. Do you remember when we was so I just remembered a story. Remember when you were a medical student? Yeah. Oh, my story. <laughs> so sorry, guys. Super had the best story. <laughs> so okay, let's just put this into context, right? So going back to sort of our our theme today is sort of talking about delays in treatment. Delays in treatment. So we've heard about um Amelie's sort of story of a patient who's come in um with a condition that does absolutely need further investigation and treatment, but there's and a sees, delay. But but she sees the right doctor who allows her to be processed quicker. Yeah. We've, we could have had the same patient see another doctor and... Have been shunted refer, away. Yeah, been referred to a GP, which is actually appropriate in that yeah, case as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you also have when like people take things into their own hands, such yeah. as our lovely super here. Which is where I step up to the mic. <laughs> So, <laughs> here's the mic. Um, so, I mean, it kind of along the theme of delays in treatment comes from two sides is kind of what we're trying to get at here. Yes. Firstly, from the patient side, and then there's secondly delays from the doctor's side. Mm-hmm. So, delays from the patient side is, of course, literally them seeking healthcare firstly, and, and then, then seeking secondly, it from the right place. Exactly, knowing where to go to seek the appropriate healthcare. Because um, otherwise, they just get turned away, they get disillusioned, maybe they never come back. Um, secondly, there's from the doctor side where you're dealing with a patient and you may delay in managing something, um, and then that can change outcomes. Yeah. Um, so now when you combine the two, so what about <laughs> when us doctors cross the line and become patients? <laughs> so this is where it's interesting because obviously absolutely we absolutely awful patients, <laughs> absolutely awful. I know we're the worst, but it's because you know what it I think strikes fear into my soul when someone's like, I'm like, oh, so what's your career? And then he's like. Uh, I was I'm I'm a neurologist. And I'm yeah, like, and you're like okay, yeah, crumbling. To oh, the ground. I'm an obstetrician gynae re- registrar, and I'm like, yeah. oh lord. Yeah, I actually you have it. double my knowledge. This is hilarious. I was once a medical student in dermatology, and I didn't. I took a history from a patient, um, you know, who was actually a, a doctor. I think we all have this story. It makes me feel sick. And then the derm consultant, who was super scary, came in and was like present and apparently when you know and i'd heard from other people like you know you hear from other people <laughs> present and, now <laughs> and you hear from other people and they're like oh when she says present like you have to really present yeah. and take a really thorough history so i was like i practiced <laughs> what i was gonna say i'd like bullet pointed things i thought i might forget i was ready to go so she was like present i was like okay <laughs> i'm ready <laughs> and literally um i finished presenting and the patient was like that was really nice. That was a really good presentation. And I was like, wow. High five. <laughs> but um, what did she say? 
the, the consultant. She was What's like, the point of your story, basically? It was just that the patient had my back because she was oh. Because <laughs> they were medical. Anyways, okay, fine. I get you, I get you. So, when oh. us doctors cross the line and become patients, the danger is that we know how the system works mm-hmm. and you may want to speed things up a little bit for yourself. So, in my situation... You say doctor, you're, you're a medical student, but yeah, continue. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, let, yeah, let's be, let's, <laughs> let's be real. I was, I was a final year medical student. <laughs> Uh, was I final year? Okay, anyways, irrespective. I was a medical sc- a medical student and I had a neck clump, right? Which was, okay, guys, clearly it was just like, it was a lymph node. Super, did you have fever? Did you have night sweats? No, but I didn't. Okay, let Were me just... Were you losing weight? No, 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 none okay, of this was happening. Okay. Continue, but medical student, continue. I'd also recently not had, like, any infections. There was actually no need for this this random, like, neck clump to be there. Also, it was, like, a painful neck, like, a painful little lump. And, you know, in my head, I was like, I'm so sure it's nothing. But I was like, you know, sometimes you're seized with this, like... Mm-mm. Just, just stupid paranoia that this is yeah. something. So um, anxiety is just not good anyway to have. Yeah, it was just like a bad. It was just a bad time, clearly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I call up my GP practice and I'm like, okay, I just I have this neck lump. I speak to the secretary. He's like, oh, there's no appointments, and I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, I've called literally at eight thirty on the dot. There's no appointments. Okay, that's annoying. Um, next appointment, you have to call tomorrow at eight thirty on the dot. Type thing. So. Anyways, I'm like, okay, fine. And then, you know, but I'm kind of like loitering on the phone and she's like, well, we have telephone consultations. Oh, I'll take that. Yeah. And I was like, hello, sign me up. Um, so. <laughs> Super lies down in bed. <laughs> <laughs> so then I get a call later in the day and uh, the GP's like asking me about it. And I sort of give her a bit of my spiel about mm-hmm. what the symptoms are, what's been going on, you know, what my ideas, concerns and expectations are. Um, and of course the GP's like, well, you know, obviously I have to examine, I have to examine you Mm -hmm. to know. Um, and she's like, can you come in for this, you know, for this day, whatever to be examined. And so I say, um, can we just like, I was like, literally, okay. I was like, let's be frank. I was like, can I just go and get a blood test? Just get a full blood count, which is going to really rule out the most worrying thing mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyways, it's been a while. I'd quite like to get, I'd like to get my thyroid function checked. Like, let's just do some blood tests. And she's like, okay, you know what? It sounds like a good idea. Just get a blood test and then we'll call you back with the results. Mm-hmm. Same day I go, get my blood test done, <laughs> sorted. Next day I get a call back being like, it's absolutely fine. By the way, your vitamin D levels so. <laughs> though. They are awful. Brown girl, <laughs> sort out your vitamin Literally, D. Literally, <laughs> they were like, they are so bad. And I was like, and they're like, are you having, <laughs> they were like to me, are you having tremors? <laughs> like, <laughs> how symptomatic are you? With this? I was like, I'm chilling, man. <laughs> but anyways, um, short, like, long story short there, is that's like a complete opposite story to the story that you had, Amelie, about mm. your patient. Where your patient knows exactly how to access healthcare mm-hmm. and actually is already coming to you, not really, really with a symptom, but kind of with a diagnosis in their mm-hmm. mind mm-hmm. or a query diagnosis. What, in you their mind. coming with a diagnosis. And it's actually funny because I suppose the GP in your case kind of knew that in your mind you were thinking, do I have lymphoma or yeah. not? Yeah. Even though you guys never said the word lymphoma, but, but you said to. you didn't. Have I'm to. like, you know, I, I'm on the phone. I'm a 23 year old girl with a neck lump. Mm-hmm. You're a 23 year old girl with, with a, a neck, neck lump. lump. Had it for some time. You think you're not feeling too great yeah. in yourself. Yeah. Whatever that means. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and even though you didn't say all the other symptoms, she knew exactly what the diagnosis was yeah. that you wanted to rule out. Yeah. So I suppose there's that um, almost assumption that you have 
a certain level of knowledge mm-hmm. that would allow you to come to be that. safe yeah. within within the, that kind of decision being made. So actually, that wouldn't even be done for most patients. Most patients would have had to book a GP appointment, seen that GP in a couple of weeks' time, and then a blood test would have been done. And yeah. actually, you've just wasted a lot of time. I say waste time, but you've spent a lot of time. Absolutely. Think um, about think about focusing say, on them. Think about that. Say it's okay. Think about your actual patient who's developed a neck lump. Who's not my situation was sorted in one day. Yeah, that was yeah. one day, and it was done. Yeah, but then I suppose the good thing and the reassuring thing is actually, in the case of things like the two week wait rule, you've got really specific guidance as a general practitioner yeah. on if my patient presents with so and so and so, we can rush things through in two weeks time yeah. to get a basically a to get a diagnosis yeah. to get a specialist appointment and basically a diagnosis yeah. um, or ruling out a diagnosis so yeah. that's important and that's useful yeah exactly mm-hmm. and I think it's also even, even other things that we have in place like you know how you kind of flag up things like patients that are frequent attenders, other things that are flagged up when you're not quite sure or a certain diagnosis hasn't been made. There were certain things that sort of flag up. Okay, yes, yeah. There will be certain things. Exactly. Just like mm. an examination will also flag up something that just doesn't sit right, doesn't sound right either. Yeah. So we've spoken a little bit about the two-week wait mm-hmm. and also the barriers to accessing your GP or accessing the appropriate health service. And mm. um, But then now we can look at where patients can refer themselves. So if you think of something like picking up the phone to call an ambulance or coming to A&E, should we talk about some of those situations? Yeah, so of course I think this is something that patients see Mm A&E and hospital healthcare as being firstly somehow often a lot more accessible because there is no, you know, you, you just turn up. Because you self-refer and you're there. You turn up and you're there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I secondly, would hate to go to A&E. Yeah. But anyway, that's another story. That's but then another that, story. That's the thing. It's like people are happy to turn up there and mm-hmm. sit there for four hours mm-hmm. before they're seen about something. <laughs> because More they can. in some trusts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's because they, because they know that they will be seen, as opposed to, say, trying mm-hmm. to see your GP. Yeah. Um, but say in A&E, we can talk about um, things that are in place that allow patients that are that have got a probably like a likely certain condition mm-hmm. to be seen quickly yeah. and a big push for mm-hmm. that let's talk about surviving sepsis i love surviving, surviving sepsis. sepsis yeah it was a massive for us in medical school wasn't it the end of medical school it's like it was a classic question we could all like reel off go on you're three and three sepsis. out you know what, what are they super but go on is this a test yeah, <laughs> you know i've got a degree right no, no, go on three in <laughs> All right, bit of teaching for you guys. A shout out. Teaching? Uh, I, think, I, don't know. I think they all probably three, <laughs> three out, say it with us. So three in, fluids, antibiotics, catheter. Three, three out. out um. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Is it catheter? Catheter in, right? Isn't that catheter out? That's urine out. Oh, is it? Antibiotics... Fluids, oxygen. Oxygen, Suva. Yeah. My God. So, out is catheter, well, urine. Urine yes. out. Yeah. Catheter in. Um, lactate. Yeah. Blood cultures. Yes, that's it. I was, yeah. like, I was thinking there. It's like, hold on a minute. But basically... Right, now I'm a bit sweaty under the collar after that grilling. But basically, when we look at the sepsis 6, um, it's interesting mm. because actually it's improved outcomes massively in yeah. healthcare. Um. Obviously, we see it mostly when patients present for the first time. They've been home mm. and they've they've got shivering, they've got fevers, mm. they've got a source of infection, be that mm. chest infection, yeah. urine, um, some a surgical site, or literally anything that you can imagine to be infected, so anywhere in the body. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that they come into hospital, we do we know that this patient has an infection or probably has an infection. Let's do these six things mm. or some sort of some form of these six things and treat them as soon as possible and you know what actually Emily I think you really nailed it on the head earlier when you talked about smart goals because something that I actually think now is popping up in my head is how having smart goals mm. is what's allowed us to measurably reduce the delays in treatment in these things that in these things we're talking about where the mean? NHS has strategies. What so we're talking we talked about two week rate referral. Mm-hmm. That's when your patients come to you with a symptom. Because they mm-hmm. come to you with a symptom like abdominal pain yeah. or PV bleeding, mm-hmm. whatever. And you're thinking cancer, you're asking specific questions to clarify if they have red flag symptoms. Mm-hmm. You then have a set time in which you're gonna refer them to a certain service and they'll be seen within those two weeks. So they are. That's a smart goal. Likewise, in sepsis, you've yeah. got. So you're looking for sepsis. You're mm-hmm. looking for some a suggestion of in systemic infection, mm-hmm. and then you've got specific things you need to do. So these three in, three out, and that's within a certain time frame, within the golden hour. And that's going to help the patient and improve their their outcomes. outcomes. Yeah, but actually, that's something that we know that it's going to help the patient improve the outcomes. But for you as the clinician you've got specific targets and specific tasks that you need to accomplish. And I think it's amazing when you think about how many numbers and how many people have improved because of these things. Mm. And particularly when you hear stories of, like, yesteryear, when people may have come into hospital with a fever, some sort of, like, Mm. tracking cellulitis, but they were never treated with antibiotics. For... Ages, hours. Yeah, when ages. you when you hear the stories of how because many hours it Because you don't necessarily took. need to find your source immediately, but mm-hmm. you can actually just start on some empirical treatment just to make sure that you're dealing with something, or at least yeah. you think that you're dealing with something. But I suppose what I find interesting sometimes is, and it's probably because I'm quite junior and I've only been working for two years, but sometimes if I have a patient who I think fits into this picture, 
I just go gung-ho with the sepsis six mm. and then I kind of forget about them as a patient holistically. Mm-hmm. So I suppose in some cases, actually, maybe, yes, I'm dealing with the acute problem, mm-hmm. but am I dealing with all the other problems that they're presenting with? Mm. Though... I was going to say, in A&E, sometimes... Acute is... <laughs> acute, is acute is what you're, you're managing. Right. And you're that right. it's not that that... The, the sort of wider picture is going to be left behind. That will be managed when later on, You're exactly right. throughout the hospital stay or later at a point when actually it's maybe a bit more appropriate for it to be managed. Yeah, yeah. that's probably just a personal thing. I that's actually just, enjoy. Yeah, I enjoy seeing <laughs> patients and talking to them, figuring out what's going on, making sure we've sorted everything out yeah. as much as it is in our power. But that's just me. But um, going back to surviving, surviving, surviving sepsis. Going back to the surviving sepsis campaign. Yeah, it shows how that was a massive thing that has changed, has prevented delays in treatment in patients. And mm-hmm. I actually had a really interesting talk from uh, one of my consultants recently at teaching mm-hmm. about how we're really, really good at treating sepsis in A and E. Yeah, but actually in inpatients, it's a bit of a different story. Because it's not the same as a patient coming to you and everyone's first thought is, is this sepsis? You actually more often might get a bleep whilst you're on ward cover saying, oh, the patient's maybe tachycardic or mm-hmm. maybe they're about to spike a temperature. Mm-hmm. And actually those things are a bit different, isn't it? The, by the time you get around to seeing them, you don't know if they're on antibiotics, are they not on antibiotics and all that stuff. It's, it's a bit of a different story. Mm. What was he saying that was important about it or what's so different about so the take-home message, yeah, was that actually we should be better at managing sepsis in our patients mm-hmm. that have already been admitted to hospital mm-hmm. and have been on the ward for God knows how long. Yeah. Um, and actually, probably we're really good at doing an A&E because that's a focus. Like, you can't open an A&E cast card without seeing a sepsis flowchart and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are you thinking sepsis? And actually, once someone says that to you, you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's think about it. And I, and I suppose it's also about... Um the environment in which you're working, sometimes you expect certain things to pop up in certain places. Mm. So actually your mind is can be closed off. So mm. that's what I was saying about having my mind closed off to like the wider problems for the patient. Sometimes mm. I think it's important to make sure that you're seeing each patient with like a fresh mind and that you're almost not just thinking this is the only thing that might be going on because actually... yeah. You just need to be flexible and open as a clinician just to be looking yeah. at all the numbers and to appreciate that yeah. what is going on might not be the only thing. Yeah, and being being dynamic and reacting to what's yeah. in front of you rather than trying to sort of steamroll through with what you think it should be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Actually pausing and taking yeah. in everything that's Because it's on. very easy to do that, particularly when you've got pathways in place. And I suppose one thing that I really wanted to talk about, just because it's been a game changer like literal game changer for medicine in the UK um, is PCI. Yeah. And I actually know that PCI hasn't changed since like we've been in med school or no. even working. Mm. Um, but it's really changed things for people who work in cath labs or in cardiac centres. And people having heart attacks, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Those people. I'm sure they're pretty grateful for it. But essentially, um, if you have an acute heart attack, acute STEMI, I know lots of doctors listen to this podcast, but for those who aren't doctors might be listening today. And for those who had a heart attack, have had a heart attack and are seen within 120 minutes, is it? Yeah. And it's a specific type of heart attack, so the most, the more high-risk ones. Yes. They can be sent straight to a cardiac centre mm. um, where they can go for a particular surgery to unblock their arteries. Mm. 
I hope no cardiologist is listening to me explain <laughs> a PCI. All I can say is a PCI is a percutaneous coronary intervention. Yes, tell them. But that's that's the extent <laughs> of my medical knowledge. But no, no. can I just say, really, sorry, really quick, it's quite scary doing a podcast for doctors because we know <laughs> that we are so junior and so many people who are listening will know so much more than yeah. us. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Let me just breathe a second. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Moment of silence over. But basically, PCI has just been amazing. Yeah, so with PCI, I mean, it's completely changed. You know, you can turn up and be having a really high-risk heart attack. The ambulance that picks you up will take a tracing of your heart and deliver you to the place where you can have the appropriate treatment. So <laughs> this... Oh, say, okay, say you don't call an ambulance. Say you rock up to your GP practice. Oh, they will call you an ambulance. Okay, forget that. You they, rock will up, call you, they will call you an ambulance. They will call you an ambulance. No, you will then take you to the appropriate see, place. but if you've contacted some sort of healthcare person mm. and you're having symptoms of a heart attack yeah you will be taken you'll be sent to the place where you need to be to have your treatment and this is literally what we have been speaking about where patients don't know that and, and we talk about this a lot actually we talk about how as doctors if you had a certain condition you'd probably go to the hospital that you know can manage that condition that you may have mm-hmm. you wouldn't turn up if you had had a, a burn you wouldn't present to the A&E of a hospital that doesn't have a burns unit? No, I would. I know exactly you would drive, my three hospitals that I can go to. Exactly. You would go I, to where you need to go to. to I have would literally treatment. get my phone out, get my Uber app up and <laughs> Uber myself over to the hospital with a burns unit. Exactly, because you understand that actually for your condition that you have, you need the appropriate facilities and services. And this is what we're talking about. And this is the information that mm. patients don't, off, that often patients don't have. Um, it's because they don't have the access to that information. It's not even because they don't know to look for it. No. It's just because they might not know that hospital doesn't have a burnt unit. No. Or doesn't have a, like, cardiac centre. Yeah, them. exactly. And, you, you know, we've got to be conscious of that as clinicians. Mm. And we and clearly say in the PCI pathway, or what is it, pathway? Or the PCI thing, yeah. the whole door-to-balloon time yeah, thing. Yeah, pathway. We, we are allowing for that. And we are accepting that. And by doing that, you are massively changing the outcomes for these patients. Because a patient will turn up wherever they turn up, but they are swiftly redirected to the correct place they need to be at to have the treatment that they need to have. Yeah, they won't be redirected. They will literally be taken. Yeah, yeah, not redirected. Like, they will be physically transported to where they need to be. And I think it's it's amazing because, actually, when you hear of, like, personal stories of, of, like, doctors and nurses who work in these cath labs... Um, you're, you're going to hear the story when you do your ALS course next week. When is it? Yeah, next weekend. Yeah, so when you do your ALS course, there's this um, teacher. She's so funny. She's, like, my favourite person ever. Like, you know when you have women goals? Mm. She's, like, a serious, like, powerful woman goal yeah. kind of woman. Anyway, she was talking about how she was working in cath lab on the night when everything changed in the UK, whereby um, people who were having acute STEMIs would come straight to their hospital, the cath lab. Yeah. The cath lab. She said that um, she was just standing outside with one of the consultants, yeah. um, literally at the doors of the A&E, just waiting to receive any patient that came through because they don't even get calls. Patient came straight, the yeah. ambulance... Um, people um, handed them over the ECD tracing yeah. and the patient gets taken upstairs. So she like goes upstairs, <laughs> kind of follows the patient yeah. and puts them in the corridor to get everything sorted. Yeah. She said that she goes into, um, I think a changing room or something just to get something, yeah. maybe like a pen or whatever, then comes back out and she's like, oh my gosh, 
where's the patient? Because she looks in the trolley and she sees, like, the patient's shoes, but she can't see the patient. <laughs> she's like, oh, my God, oh, my gosh. It's the first day this is happening. I cannot find the patient. And then someone's, like, they're in the cath lab. And then she walks over to the cath lab and the patient is literally on the table about Having. to have the PCI. Yeah. And isn't that mad when you think about the pro- how the protocol would have looked like before? Yeah. Without a pathway. Yeah. You just don't have the steps in place. No. And you have to have systems in place that support things f- being facilitated quickly. You need to have someone call the ambulance operator and say... Um, I think they're having a heart attack yeah. or if they have chest pain, they can't breathe. For them to say, okay, we're going to send an ambulance straight away and get that the first ambulance out to go pick up the yeah. patient. Yeah. That ambulance, when they get there, they provide all the initial treatment. Yeah. And they Do take the ECG, the, diagnose the STEMI. Yeah. Take the patient over to the nearest hospital, which can deal with them, yeah. which is the cath lab. Yeah. And the cath lab, either take them to theatre or like have them down for thrombolysis or see if they need further management. Yeah. But for the patient who needs the immediate surgery, they're taken to the cath lab. Yeah. That is absolute madness. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, exactly. And it's But it's dope that we just take that for granted now and we don't even appreciate how it must far have been it's how gone. it must have been before. And actually I feel like this is now becoming the Swiss cheese model of this episode. Smart goals, mate. <laughs> Smart goals. Like with PCI, it's there's a time limit. Hundred and you know, was it ninety to hundred and twenty minutes, isn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's like ninety minutes door to balloon time, yeah. and then it's hundred and twenty minutes from ambulance to surgery. Yeah, I think that's what it is anyway. But you know, there's, there's... cardiologist, if you're listening, and I'm incorrect, <laughs> let me know. Let me chime know. in. Um, but you know, the point being that there's a there's a time limit. There's a there's a specific criteria. So that's ST elevation. So I think on the people ECG. know what smart goals is now. No, no, no. But I'm just saying. I'm just saying. We're saying there's a theme yeah, there here is, of, there of things that are specific. You know measurable achievable whatever goals and then they're being accomplished yeah but it's only because of those certain things like surviving sepsis um stemmies you know whatever two-week wait for cancer referrals all of these things are things that are changing patient outcomes and and reducing delays in treatment you know what i love an evidence-based you know i absolutely love evidence-based medicine that's why we practice medicine isn't it yeah yeah but it's so interesting to like know that you can Figure out a problem and find a solution to it and yeah. make that solution work for the NHS. Yeah, make it sort of an, a nationwide Big thing. up the NHS. And now let's, while we're on a positive note, let's talk about the most amazing place in a hospital. So um, I did a breast job last year. What do you I mean? mean that sounds whoa, like, whoa, that just sounds whoa, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That sounds like I had a boob job. That's it's not just, what I'm saying. Can I, can I introduce <laughs> the topic, please? Because... Yeah, let's uh, let's rewind on that. Like, Please edit that out. Like, I feel like I know you. I feel like I know you won't edit that out. I, but I hope you edit that out. But you won't, anyways. Okay. Actually, I'll let you introduce <laughs> it again yourself. So <laughs> last year, I had a job. No, in... I'm gonna do it. So, so yeah, basically, um, last year we were both F1 doctors. Um, whilst I was on maybe what was what job was it? Your third it or was your... my last job? Yeah. yeah whilst I you was on, on vascular, vascular surgery. Yeah. Um, and Suba was on breast surgery, so she was the F1. You know how I should have said it? I was the breast surgery house officer. There you go. There you go. That doesn't sound like I had a boob job. No, no. You love breast clinic, didn't you? Yeah, it was literally the best place in the hospital. It's just a place that's so efficient. Like, once they've had a referral, everything is so slick. Like, they're seen by the breast surgeon, they have... So a- it's a woman who, with a lump who presents... 
Yeah, so a woman presents with a lump to the GP. GP does a referral to breast clinic. They come in, they have their... So you have the triple sort of triple therapy, triple treatment, whatever it's called. So you have a physical examination, you have imaging, and then you have tissue diagnosis or tissue biopsy if needed. Mm -hmm. And that all happens in that one section of the hospital so slickly and so quickly. And for the patient in terms of time, how long does that take? A day. A day, yeah. A day. Whatever they need to have is done straight away. Mm. Like it is sorted. And then... And you think about how, I think really you told me this amazing fact, how mm. breast cancer is one of the commonest cancers for women. Mm-hmm. And you were telling me about a fact. What was it again? Oh, no. So um, I think because of like International Women's Day, there's like lots of like women related facts going around. Mm. And one was discussing how actually um, the quick treatment of, sorry, the quick diagnosis of breast cancer has meant that men's cancers um, are now, they're increasing in, um, in proportion just because um, breast cancer is being dealt with so effectively and quickly, yeah. which I think is pretty amazing. And it's not to say that men's cancers are getting worse, it's just to say that women's cancers are being dealt with so effectively. Yeah, management so, of breast cancer is incredible, and mm. so much of that is actually down to the fact that our services are so well designed to deal with them and mm-hmm. reduce any... A lot of things are actually down to design and systems being put into place. Yeah. I suppose the good thing as well, or the easy thing with breast cancer is actually the specificity of the diagnoses mm-hmm, mm-hmm. can actually put some management in place for the patient. Um, and you will know what's going on with the patient after they've gone through the triple therapy. Whereas with men's cancers, like prostate cancer, it's so it's difficult. It's a lot more complex. It's so, well, it's so difficult with a PSA. Everyone's going to have an elevated PSA at a certain yeah. age. And actually, most men die with um, BPH. Yeah, some element of prostatic hypertrophy. Anyways. Exactly, rather than dying of it. So it's so difficult and they're so different yeah mm-hmm. but the fact that you've got a system in place like the breast clinic where actually it's a one-stop you know shop for everything that yeah, you need yeah. and that the services are there they're so fluid they mm. work in tandem you've got excellent teamwork yeah and you've got great specialist nurses in these places yeah. as well. and everything you need is there and so all you need is the patient <laughs> <laughs> come through like literally and that's... i wonder what the next big thing will be um that will change the face of medicine it'll be interesting to know yeah but that i suppose that brings on to us on to psychiatry as well because mm. psychiatry is something that's just never really been dealt with in a in an amazing way in this country there was this figure that was saying i think it was like 266 million is spent on uh, mental health services in the uk mm. and it sounds like a really big number but to be honest any number that that big sounds like massive to me and I don't really know what it really yeah. means in real terms but you think where exactly are the services going and who are they going towards and are we actually looking after our patients appropriately yeah and there's sort of two sides to this coin that we sort of particularly wanted to speak about isn't it firstly um your patients that are seen with mental health issues who need psychological input and therapies and we all know how bad the wait time is for these Mm -hmm. things so Mm -hmm. patients are so patients will find you know will finally come and seek help Mm -hmm. Um, and you as the clinician appreciate that they need some input but actually the access to that input might be so I know that you're really struggling with your anxiety right now but the next CBT session might be three months down the line Mm -hmm. or two months down the line or six weeks down the line so you're unable to give them the treatment that they that would help them long term. Mm. Um, and actually, probably the only thing that you can do there and then 
is to give them some like coping advice mm. and also some either antidepressants or or anxiolytics. Yeah. But to actually give them the therapy unless they have access to it via a private service. Yeah. It's going to be difficult, isn't it? It is difficult and mm. it's it's such a shame as well, isn't it? And mm. who knows, I think um mental health is sort of in the in the media and in the public eye. Yeah, it's like the sexy thing at the moment. It's gathering a lot of momentum mm-hmm. and hopefully that momentum spirals it forward to be the next surviving sepsis or the next two week wait or the next yeah. breast clinic or the next you know the next big thing mm. in sort of healthcare the next big system change mm-hmm. to say okay so if a person rocks up to you and needs psychological therapy and they meet, meet a certain criteria there should be a you know like a a smart goal or whatever yeah. to get them the treatment that they need within a set fixed time frame mm-hmm. but I suppose the difficulty with that is with mental health you're talking about things that are more than just one magic drug or one magic treatment. Mm. It's actually a lot of the times it'll be like on a societal level. We're talking about problems in society. Mm. We're talking about do people have communities? Um, do they have yeah. friends around them? Do yeah. they have a good level of education? Uh, do they have access to good food? Um, do they have money? Do they have a yeah. job? Yeah, um, yeah no, a lot I appreciate... of the times you might literally just have rubbish life syndrome yeah do you know what I mean yeah so it is complex it is complex and that's probably why it's not been it's not something that's easily been fixed is it it's so multifactorial yeah and it's so holistic but then I suppose once we like are able to deal with mental health I think actually at that point we'll probably be at the point where we deal with patients on a holistic level yeah and we're probably looking at a lot more than just the one diagnosis that they've come in with. But then I would say actually... But that sounds like utopia almost, doesn't it? But then I would say that in inpatient psychiatry, there is mm. that sort of approach to, men, to... You know, when you're seeing your, um, you know, mental health patients, there is an approach of like a proper multidisciplinary team. You know, yeah. it's not just the doctors. You're seeing them with psychologists. You see them with occupational but therapists, everyone's social everyone's awaiting workers. a bed in a psychiatry hospital, aren't they? That's the it's issue. Not, it's bed not crisis. like you've got beds free for people to come in no and actually speaking to what are they called the care coordinators speaking to the yeah. care coordinators actually sometimes it's difficult for them to get a patient into a bed because there'll be more there'll be patients who are more pressing to be in a yeah psychiatric environment i think this is the hospital the, environment this is the difficulty is that actually with like you said with mental health there's so many complex things there that actually your patients that are being admitted are the very, very, very unwell ones mm-hmm. um, who desperately need that. And mm-hmm. that's because of like the, the bed crisis. And then they mm-hmm. have access to the, you know, the sort of multidisciplinary team. Your patient that probably does need the multidisciplinary team input in the community. Mm-hmm. It's harder to a- achieve that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's more complex and it's harder to achieve that in yeah. one, in one team, in one setting. Mm-hmm. It's not so easy. And sometimes you either have to have to wait until the patient's got a a parent who's, like, pushy enough to get them into the service, or you have to wait for a patient to deteriorate so much in the community that they have to come in Mm. and because they're a danger to the public. And Mm. a lot of the times, they may be dangerous to themselves, Mm. but that is still... I mean, in terms of, like, neglect or lack of Mm. self-care... but they're not even in coming into the hospitals. No, because they don't even they can't advocate for themselves at that point. Yeah. To even self present and seek treatment and seek help. Mm. 
So I think that would actually make for an interesting episode all on its own because yeah. we cannot talk about psychiatry in, in two minutes. Yeah, no. <laughs> Enough and in two minutes. No. Like you did your first placement in psychiatry. My first job, yeah. And obviously my BSc as well was yeah. in psychology Of BSC. course it was. We've got so much to talk about when it comes yeah, to that. Yeah, and I actually, and I did a mental health module as part of my mm-hmm. ethics and law MSc. Mm-hmm. And I've my first job of second year was obviously psychiatry. Yeah. I mean, really, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and I loved it, it. Yeah, absolutely loved it. Yeah, I think it teaches you so much. Absolutely, so, so much, and it opens your eyes to like a whole other side of the NHS. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, Suba, do you want to finish it off the podcast, and then we'll? Yeah. So let me just wrap this guy up. So, I mean, obviously, today we've spoken a lot about delays in treatment and how that comes in a variety of forms and there are so many strategies in healthcare that we've spoken about that are in place to limit the dangers of it so from two-week cancer weight referrals to the surviving sepsis campaign and to breast clinic um, all of which we've covered today um so tying back to sort of amelie's story regarding her patient in a&e there's oh, a yeah theme. i almost forgot about that of course let's come back to that there's a theme in your story, Amelie, that I think is so important for all of us doctors, irrespective of system, things that are in place um, at a system level, Mm. there are things that we can do every day as doctors when we see each and every single one of our patients. And that is to consider them within their own narrative and consider what barriers they might have to accessing treatment so that we can advocate for them and advise them on how best to use services because Mm. we have that insider knowledge and to be quite frank for them, it's far from straightforward. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a, a big take-home message definitely for definitely. all of us today. Um, now I sound like a teacher. Um, <laughs> but, but can I say something before we end? Yeah, go ahead. I just want to say thank you to everyone who's been listening to the show. Yeah, thanks. We literally winged the first episode. <laughs> if you saw us, you would have been... It would have been horrendous. We just went into a room and just chatted about a case like we do when we're at home. We didn't yeah. structure it at all. So I appreciate everyone who spent took the time out just to listen to the episode. Yeah. Um, and we've got some a lot of feedback mm-hmm. about the way that we can approach future episodes and some ideas that we can like take on into the next couple of episodes that are coming. Yeah. So thank you for for, for the feedback. Thank please, you. please leave a review. It's been so helpful for us. Um, well, only if it's five stars. So <laughs> less helpful, but more um, like congratulatory. Um, so please leave a review and thank you for listening. Thank you and bye bye. Take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.